Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to uh, our uh, latest vodcast. And this will be CT of the Acute Abdomen GI Applications. And what I'll try to do is uh, cover some interesting topics, recognizing that if I spoke about the acute abdomen, I could be giving you about uh, 20 hours of lectures. So we're just going to try to do this in a couple parts and just do a few basic principles and a few applications. So, first of all, what's an acute abdomen? It's a clinical syndrome characterized by the sudden onset of severe abdominal pain requiring emergency medical or surgical treatment. And so it can range anywhere from the doctor seeing the patient, saying don't worry about it, to the patient going immediately to surgery. So it's a wide spectrum, and of course most patients are somewhere in between. In terms of numbers, abdominal pain is the most common cause for an ER visit overall and second most common in patients over age 15, just second to chest pain. And it accounts for about 8 million of the ER visits in the U.S. every year. If you think about the acute abdomen, there are many clinical parameters from age, sex, past history, medication, symptoms, and the like that can really allow you to make the diagnosis without imaging. Also, to recognize whether it's without imaging or with imaging, so many things are dependent on history. So, for example, what's happening in a 25-year-old female is different than a 25-year-old male, and what's happening in a 20-year-old female is different than what's happening in a 70-year-old female, usually. Now, of course, each of these patients could have had acute appendicitis. So some things can happen in everybody, but many of the disease processes we're talking about are going to be very specific to certain populations. But also, when you look at the patient's symptoms, their age, their sex, the lab exams, prior imaging studies, and just clinical history, and the world-famous physical exam, you can often reach the diagnosis of these findings without a radiology study. But again, we're going to be talking about those patients where the diagnosis is not so simple. One of the things that often has been criticized in terms of CT, it's as rapid growth in the ER. This article showed a four times growth in a 12-year period, but recognizing the authors also made the point that many places did not have ER scanners when this study started, and that made a big difference. And also, just the reality of CT, the best scanners, the newest scanners, are extremely suited for the ER whether it's the rapid, the minimally invasive, high-res imaging. Uh, the key is rapid scanning, rapid interpretation, rapid diagnosis, and very rapid management. Another important thing is when people speak about uh, the value of CT or criticize CT, is that people often talk about, well, the study was negative. Well, you know very well, a negative study is not a non-important finding. The patient has acute abdomen or symptoms suggesting acute abdomen, and the CT is negative, the likelihood is the patient has nothing or it has enteritis, but has nothing of any significance. So you can't really say that a negative study is a not necessary study. Sometimes saying normal is the best thing. So if you have a person rule out appendicitis, high clinical suspicion but not high enough, and you say normal appendix, the patient won't be treated. They will not get surgery. So saying it's normal is not necessarily a negative thing. You can see from this article by Rosen, this going back 17 or 18 years, use of CT, increased physician confidence, reduced the rate of hospital admissions, led to more timely surgery, ruled out significant disorders, and provided alternative diagnosis. And you see this article, even though it's 
18 years old, made the three biggest points going backwards. You find the correct diagnosis, and maybe it's a suspected diagnosis. You find the unsuspected diagnosis because CT is not organ specific, but can see everything. And at the end of the day, it changes your management, whether it's 24% the rate of hospital admissions or more timely surgery or less timely surgery in 11% uh, of cases. We talk about this level of certainty. When your physician sees you, you want them to be certain. You don't want them to say it could be X, it could be Y, it could be Z. You don't want a differential diagnosis. You want one answer. And a quarter of the time, CT provides the answer you didn't know. Now, the, there's another study by Jim Thrall and his team. They were really looking at that to see how CT affects physician decision-making in the setting of non-traumatic acute abdomen. Well, their numbers were impressive. Common diagnosis was renal colic, followed by intestinal obstruction. Now look at the results of CT. Altered the lead diagnosis in 49% of cases. Increased certainty from 70 to 92%. Management plan changed in 42%. Surgery was planned for 79 patients before CT, while after CT, 25% of these patients, okay? 25% patients were discharged. So now you're looking at better diagnoses, more certain diagnosis, and patients who might have gone to surgery with a negative laparotomy don't go to surgery at all. So the ability to create the right answer becomes very critical. And so in this article, uh, Thrall and Abdullah and the team agreed that um, CT in patients with non-traumatic complaints increased certainty and changed management decisions and was a great study. Now, a year later, this article by Pooler came out looking at appendicitis and made two very important points. One is CT is very good for detecting appendicitis, but the reality is CT uh, will only find appendicitis in about 23% of cases referred for, pancreas, for appendicitis, so only in about one quarter of the cases. Three quarters of the patients have something else or they're normal. CT found 31% alternative causes for symptoms. And you can see at the end of the day, when CT was negative, it was usually correct. Final agreement between CT and, and outcome, 94 plus percent of the time. In 704 patients with CT did not suggest a specific diagnosis, the treating clinician did not arrive at a specific diagnosis in 82% of the time, which means if CT doesn't see it, you probably have nothing there. And again, when you look at alternative diagnosis, you can see the range from uh, gastroenteritis to stone disease, diverticulitis, and the like. And of course, it's different in men and women because of benign and nexal mass with or without torsion being 18%. So again, you can see regardless of the area of operation, regardless of the type of process, CT is very good for detection and very good for exclusion. And so, so Pooler concluded that frequently CT will have an alternative diagnosis. These conditions often require hospitalization and invasive treatment, and CT plays a instrumental role in the triage of these patients. Now, still people were critical. Well, a multi-center study to look at how physicians' diagnosis, certainty, and management were affected by CT. Multi-center study, prospective, looked at the main indications for CT, abdominal pain, chest pain, and or dyspnea, and headache. 
Look at their results. Physicians changed their lead diagnosis in 51, 42, and 24 percent of patients. Diagnostic confidence increased 25 percent, 20 percent, and 13 percent. And admission decisions changed in 25, 19, and 19 percent of the cases. So you can see this tremendous change and this tremendous management decisions made by CT, and they made the correct, the correct decisions. Across all indications, we found the physician's confidence before CT was inversely related to the likelihood of a change in diagnosis after CT, supporting the use of diagnostic confidence as a measure of diagnostic uncertainty. After CT, the mean diagnostic levels were uniformly high above 95% in all three patient groups. For common referral indications to CT and emergency departments, physicians' diagnosis and admission decisions change frequently after CT and diagnostic uncertainty is elevated. These findings suggest that current ordering practices are indeed justified. Well, the truth is they're more than justified. It probably means we're not scanning enough patients. We're not having enough normal studies. So I think this push not to do things has had some impact, but you can see when CT is used well by people who are really good at doing it, it just has tremendous, tremendous results. Now, in trying to put this talk together, I mentioned I could talk about the acute abdomen for days. I could speak about organ-by-organ organ things from hepatic abscesses to emphyseminous cholecystitis. I could speak about splenic abscesses or right lower quadrant abscesses such as appendicitis. I could speak about unusual cause of abdominal pain, in this case, left lower quadrant where the patient has an appendix epiploica. So there's a range of things we can think about and a range of things uh, where strategies for implementation become very critical. You can see from all of these cases, an important thing is the protocols used to scan the patients. So let's quickly look at that. Uh, we like to give either positive or neutral contrast. We always give contrast, depending on the app, will be positive or neutral. GI bleeding, ischemia will surely be neutral. Perforation, fistulas, surely positive contrast. We'll then inject contrast up to five cc's a second. Uh, we use uh, Omni 350 typically, or Visi 320, and that works very nicely. In terms of oral contrast, I mentioned we can give neutral, which is water, or we can give positive, which is iohexol within solution. Now, we definitely give positive if we can't give IV, and we definitely give positive if we're looking for a fistula, in this case, a patient with pneumoperitoneum. Uh, we also give positive at times in oncology patients to better define involvement of the bowel loops, which can be problematic without any oral contrast material. And this is a great example of a patient with a duodenal ulcer, pneumoperitoneum, you, which you can see. And then you also can see the perforation is at the duodenum. You see contrast layering along the liver. That patient has free fluid in the abdomen. The patient has a perforation. And you can see the free fluid tracking downward. So a very, very nice example. Now this example also shows the positive and positive contrast material. And for years, radiologists always gave positive contrast material to all patients, and surely in the ER setting. But now with the push to get people in and out of radiology within what seems like a couple minutes, people want to talk about eliminating the use of oral contrast. And this article by Levinson um, made the point that eliminating oral contrast from ER may be successful in decreasing length of stay and time for mortar. 
Well, the fact is a lot of it depends on how efficient you are or aren't. If you're efficient and you get the patient down within the right amount of time and you give them oral contrast, you're not going to typically have a problem. But again, if you're twiddling around, if you're inefficient, if a case doesn't get from the scanner to you in three hours, you indeed have a problem. Now, the ER docs have pushed this. Bucata, contrast is unnecessary for abdominal CTs. Well, the fact is, this is an ER doc telling you what you need to do. I think we need to tell them what to do, and we do that at Hopkins, and we get along well, because our expertise is in doing scans, interpreting scans, and protocoling scans. Their expertise is in evaluating patients, ordering the studies, and then treating the patients. We each have our job, and as long as we each do our job well, things will be great. So in terms of contrast, I mentioned we ideally like to give contrast. When no contrast, rule out stone disease would be a no contrast. If you're evaluating a mass, you might do a few non-contrasts first. But typically, we're going with IV contrast, arterial and venous phase imaging. Uh, in terms of triggering, uh, we like to, to do a range of things depending on the patient, depending on the scanner. But any of these things will work. Fixed delay is the most challenging at times because unless your technologist is good and the patient um, is cooperative and you're paying attention, the second phase may be too early or the first phase may be too late. So again, it's important to really get good at this. And it's something that's beyond the scope of this um, lecture, but something we speak about in our courses every year. In terms of doing test bolus that works, you can see very nicely here the attenuation of the contrast and how good it creates the 3D images. Now it's important to have a good injection because if you don't inject fast enough, you don't have good opacification, you can miss luminal narrowing, luminal occlusion, you miss information about GI bleeding, about different tumors and how they behave. So contrast, we all agree, is very important. We'll use um, 0.75 millimeter thick sections every 0.5 millimeters, 64 slice or better, which means essentially everybody can do it. When we look at the images, we'll look from axial to coronal and sagittal to 3D rendering. And you can see here why patient with thickened bowel, fatty mesentery consists with Crohn's. You go from axial, you can see much better the extent of involvement when you look at the coronal imaging. You can see the thickening of the bowel, the prominent vasorecta. You go forward to the MIP imaging. Look how nicely you see the vessels, you see the vasorecta, the comb sign, making sure this patient has active Crohn's disease. And then with MIP, you don't see the bowel well, but with volume rendering you do. So now you see the thickened bowel, you see evidence of minimal bowel dilatation, you see the comb sign, very prominent vessels in a patient with active bowel disease. Now from there, we know what bowel looks like, and so we want to look at bowel obstruction. Bowel obstruction is a common cause of morbidity and mortality. Most patients with bowel obstruction have partial obstruction. Most can be treated conservatively, but not always. If you overlook a bowel obstruction, mortality will increase, literally up to 100%. CT, multi-detector style, has been shown to be the best imaging tool for evaluation of bowel obstruction. High sensitivity and high specificity. Causes for bowel obstruction, many, but most common is adhesions. And when you evaluate a patient, what you're looking for is to answer questions. Is there really bowel obstruction present? Maybe not. If there is bowel obstruction, is it partial or is it complete? 
can we determine its cause? Is it a hernia? Is it a mass? Is it an obstruction? Is it an ileus? And where do we send the patient? Does the patient need medical management or surgical management or basically can be discharged? Remember now, when you make the right decisions, simple obstruction has good outcome, but if you delay surgery that's necessary for more than 24 hours, mortality rises to 25%. With untreated strangulation, it's literally 100%. Now, what do we look for? We've spoken about small bowel before. We look for wall thickening. We look for abnormal enhancement, be it increased or decreased. We look for abnormal position of bowel. We look for inflamed mesenteric fat. When we talk about dilated bowel over 2.5 centimeters. We talk about a feces sign, which means air bubbles and intestinal content, content rather, proximal to the site of obstruction. You don't always see a feces sign, but when you do, it's a great helpful sign to show you where to look for the site of obstruction. You may see bowel wall thickening, and of course you may see transitions. One of the things we look for in small bowel is the presence of transitions. Dilated loops to normal loops, normal loops to dilated root loops. We look at where it is and then why it is. So in this case, you see multiple dilated loops of bowel, mesenteric vessels are fine, Look at the lower loop going up to the right upper quadrant, and that's distal small bowel, but you can see there's obstruction, there's a transition point, but you don't see a mass, you don't see the intersusception. You kind of see a linear structure next to the bowel, which you can see here, and that's the appearance of adhesions. Now, adhesions is more the transition you see, and what you don't see is a mass, you don't see an internal hernia, you don't see any of the other problems. And that indeed becomes very, very important. This article by Paulson, the adhesion is not identified, but it's inferred from the transition. I mentioned when we look at bowel, we look at the enhancement. Look at the bowel in the left upper quadrant, thickened wall. There's fluid around it, that always concerns me, but you can see that there's no enhancement. That's ischemic bowel, and this patient has a mid-gut volvulus. It's classic for an internal hernia. Look how beautiful those bowel loops are, and you go to the coronal, you see the bowel loop, you see the twisting of the vessels, which you can see better on these images. We talk about a range of findings. One of the important things in looking at bowel is looking at the presence of obstruction, looking at the type of obstruction, and trying to figure out specifically what in fact is going on so that you're able to be able to make the right decision. So let's do this. I think um, bowel is very important. I don't want to go a little bit late on this talk. So let's start here and let's start talking a little bit about closed loop obstructions uh, and look at that a bit more carefully when we come back in, let's say, uh, 15 minutes. Be right back.